When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. I know today's guest through my children. Dr. Karen Adderson is a mom, a pediatrician, and a New York Times bestselling author. She's a graduate of Harvard College and Johns Hopkins Medical School. Her latest book is called Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons. I learned so much from Kara about the ways we can support boys going into puberty and beyond, but I think her perspective on gender and masculinity is fascinating, even if you do not have children of your own. If we empower our kids with all the knowledge and information, then they have they have sort of autonomy around it, and they feel like they have a little more control, and it feels better. Let's get to Dr. Kara Natterson. So I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so, I, I love the book so much. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, you know, I had have the privilege of having a pubescent boy. <laughs> Although having read the chapter on a certain chapter, I don't want to out him, but I, I'm wondering if he is fully pubescent yet, but we can get to that. We can get to that. You know, mine is fully pubescent. I know. Yours is like yeah. 26 years old yeah. trapped, in eighth grade. Like, trapped in the brain of a 14-year-old. It's very <laughs> special. It's incredible. So before we get to that, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you talk about it in the book, but I wanted to ask you why and how you came to writing this really important book for any mom out there who has a boy, but from nine on, I think this is required reading. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I think it started when I started in pediatrics, really. And I was in the office for many, many years taking care of kids. And you have this one-to-one messaging, which is great. And you learn a lot from the kids and a lot from the parents. But it was sort of the importance of the messaging really came after I left practice and I started writing and I wrote all these American Girl body books, right? Those are middle grade readers. They're for eight to 12 year olds. They're really what happens to your body during puberty. Very cartoony, very sweet, and very culty. I can't tell you the number of people who stopped me and they've read the books. And it took me a long time to convince American Girl, who's a girl company, to let me write a boy book. But puberty is very human. It's really actually not gendered at all. Even though I wrote a book called Decoding Boys, it's it's such a, it's such a universal experience about hygiene. Like everyone needs soap, right? It doesn't matter what your genetics are. Yes, please. Right, I know. And sleep and exercise and nutrition and all the basics are so human. And so American Girl published this book that I wrote called Guy Stuff. And it's like the care and keeping, but for boys. And when that came out, it was 
a minute until I knew I had to write Decoding Boys, which was the piece for parents, which explains to parents, you are not noticing it because you're not supposed to notice it, but your boys are in puberty. They're in puberty a lot earlier than you think. And we're raising them in a world where it's really important to talk to them about it. They're going to get quiet. They're going to shut the door. They're going to go to monosyllables. That's normal. That's true. It's normal. It's just not safe in the world we're raising them in to not give them language. And so that's... I thought it was really interesting how you said, you know, there's no clinical study to prove it yet, but the amplification of testosterone must cause it silence. Must. <laughs> like, I mean, how else do you explain the universality? Even parents who go, no, my son tells me everything. He talks to me nonstop. Then you stop and you go, really? The same way he did when he was seven or eight. And they go, well, okay, no. Yeah. Right. So they all, testosterone does something to boy volume. I yeah. swear. One distinction that I found really interesting was that culturally we have come to accept girls in puberty to talk about it. They talk about their periods and et cetera. And it's outward, right? Right. Like we can see it. And I think it's wonderful that we're at a place in our culture where girls can talk about puberty and talk about the change in their body and feel more comfortable. But I didn't realize that there was this disparity between how we kind of think about girls in puberty and how we think about boys in puberty Partly, I thought it was fascinating. I forget the woman's name, the researcher that you spoke to. Marsha Herman Giddens. Yes, who said that there's something titillating about a girl going through puberty, and that's why everybody wants to talk about it. Right. Which was kind of horrifying and made a lot of sense at the same time. I agree. I agree. But I thought, wow, this is an area where despite, you know, the impetus behind it, which Mm -hmm. of which there are many, not just that, like girls are more ahead than boys in this way like they it's it's more culturally acceptable to talk about it and boys it seems like I mean until I read that I thought gosh we really aren't talking to our boys about Mm -hmm. what they're going through we're letting them stay in silence right right? and we're honoring their silence we expect them to get quiet everyone has told us as parents of tween and teen boys they're going to get quiet so when they do and when they shut their door we go oh that's what they do and we should leave them be we would never do that with our girls, right? If our daughters shut the door, we might give them a beat, but then we get in there and we have the conversation. It's so funny when I think back to when I was growing up and, you know, sort of the movement to find female voice, our bodies ourselves had come out Mm -hmm. and this was a really, really important sort of Bible of, of female body empowerment, emotional empowerment, right? And so by the time I was a teenager in the 80s, and we started to use these words, but by no means was it socially acceptable to walk around and talk about anatomy and periods and all this stuff. I look decade by decade, and the girl voice has gotten louder and louder. So here we are, you know, it's 2020, and our 16-year-old daughters can talk about any and all of it, and it's completely socially acceptable, and it's encouraged. Right. So the world says to them, you're going to have a period, and talk about it, and shout about it, and emote, and it's all good, and then let's problem solve for it, let's come up with all these new products around it, right? So it's coming from every direction. And the more that happened, it feels like the more the boys got silenced. The boys were never particularly verbal, neither were the girls at first, but it's 
I, I always make this pie analogy because it's how it feels to me. It feels like there's this pie of information or this pie of, of being able to be verbal about something. And the more that goes to one group, the less goes to another. And that's ridiculous. Right. This is information. This is empowerment. There's, there should be no pie. There should be no finite amount. But what happened was the distinction between the girl voice and the boy silence went from being sort of subtle to being very, very loud. And so here we are now, and we have a culture that is wonderfully empowering of young women. I mean, I really can't say enough great things, and I feel like I've been very lucky to be part of that cultural movement with the Karen Keeping books. But we've got to bring along the boys. We just do. And by we, I mean all of us, our whole community, our whole society. Media has done a, a good job of starting. I talk a lot about Big Mouth, the show Big Mouth in the book, yeah. which I I love Big Mouth, right? People are surprised. A pediatrician really likes me. Of course. It's amazing <laughs> information and it's boy voice. Right. So I think things like that are starting to move the needle. But, but you know, they have feelings. They really do. And they want to articulate them. And they have questions, right? And they've they are watching their body transform. I mean, they don't always notice. It isn't as noticeable as girl changes. We can talk about that a little bit. But, yeah. you know, the first couple of years of puberty, all that's happening is their testicles are growing. That's it. Maybe their penis grows a little bit. Nothing else. There's no, they're not going through their growth spurt. Their voices aren't dropping. They're not getting muscular. They're not taking on these manly attributes. Our girls are popping out with these breast buds. They're moody. They're, everything's out, right? For boys, it's all under their underpants. We have no clue. And so interesting for me to learn too that when hair starts to come under their arms or if they start to get pubic mm-hmm. hair or smell that that's not necessarily puberty, that that yeah. was an ad- adrenal? Yes. Adrenals are responsible okay, for that? Okay. So this is, this is a big one for pediatricians and endocrinologists especially, is helping people understand what is puberty and what isn't. Yes. So hair is not puberty. Um, it is controlled by the adrenal hormones. They are relatives of testosterone. They are sort of testosterone cousins, if you will. But that's what's driving that development, which is why you can have a five-year-old who has some pubic hair or some axillary underarm hair and it's okay. They're not in puberty and you just you roll with it. And you can have a 15 or 16 or 17-year-old that really has none. And for all intents and purposes, they're well through puberty. Typically, the the hormones that control hair and the hormones that control everything else go in sync, mm-hmm. but not always. There's, there's no right way through it. There's no right order. And that's all normal, which is what makes it so horrible. Right. (laughs) They would like a checklist and an order, and there just isn't one. So tell us a little bit about this phenomenon of earlier and earlier puberty that's also happening in boys. It's happening in girls, and it's it's happening in boys. And why you think it's happening. Yeah. So Marsha Herman Giddens is a researcher who was seeing patients in her office in the 1990s, and she noticed that girls were starting to develop earlier than they were supposed to. And I say supposed to because in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a guy named Tanner, and he did this study in the UK where he went into orphanages and he took pictures Okay, this study would never be allowed now. <laughs> so he took pictures every few months of these kids who are in these orphanages, and he documented their entry into puberty. And he did it using breast development, testicular growth, and hair. And he looked at both those, all those paths. And he said, based upon his research, now he never examined a kid. 
He never laid hands on a kid. He only took pictures, which sounds really weird as I'm saying it, but it was above board then. What he said is girls go into puberty on average around 11, and they start breastbutting. And at that time, they were getting their period sometime between 12 and three, uh, 11 and three quarters and 12. And then you have boys going into puberty around 11 and a half. That was his data, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So Herman Giddens, it's the 1990s, and she's going, uh-uh, I'm seeing this stuff happen so much earlier. So she went to the American Academy of Pediatrics and said, I want to do a study. And she looked at 17,000 girls. And what she documented was that, in fact, they were going through puberty. They were entering puberty a full year earlier than Tanner predicted. Mm -hmm. So in the 50 years from when Tanner started, now there was a one-year differential in entry into puberty. What's interesting is they weren't getting their periods any sooner, which is really, really interesting. So there was, I mean, it was a huge deal, right? It was in the press. It was when I was just starting to train in pediatrics, and it was a big, big, big headlines everywhere. And then... About 10 years later, a woman named Louise Greenspan, who I happened to train with in general pediatrics, who became an endocrinologist, she went back and she said, I want to look at Herman Giddens' data and I want to I validate it. I want to make sure that we really got this study right. And she and her colleagues did the same study. And lo and behold, they found that Herman Giddens was not right because now puberty was starting a year and a half to two years earlier. So the average So she was right age, at the time. She was right at the time, but the at times they are changing. So now the average age for entry to puberty was around nine for a white girl or a Hispanic girl and closer to eight if you were black, which is really pretty profound, yeah. right? And that is a, a dramatic shift. To me, almost as profound is periods still not changing. Mm. So now you've got a doubling of the time between when you start getting moods and you start getting breast buds, that's all estrogen effect, right? Mm -hmm. And you actually get your first period. That is that really fun, fun period yeah. for us as parents. But do they know why? Like what no. factors are contributing to Louise it? Louise wrote a wonderful book called The New Puberty that came out a couple of years ago. And it's worth a read for anyone mm -hmm. who's interested. And she asks that question. And the answer is going to be that it's what we put into and onto our bodies. So it is the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are all around us and that we are consuming in lots of different ways. What they are precisely and how we shift our consumption of them and do we need to shift our consumption of them is a whole different question that needs to be answered. The problem with what was going on in all the data collection is that no one paid any attention to boys. I mean, you know, it, boys, when they enter middle school, they look like babies, most of them. There's one kid who looks like a giant and has a little mustache, and everyone right. goes, oh, my gosh, you know, he's that one kid. <laughs> but by and large, they look like little babies, and they act right. Their maturity level really helps us to infantilize our sons. So no one looked at them. So in 2012, Herman Giddens went back, and she was like, this is ridiculous, and she looked at the boys. Mm -hmm. And she looked at 4,000 boys, and what she found was it was the exact same story. And so her data showed that boys were entering puberty around their 10th birthday if they were white, around their 9th birthday if they were black, and somewhere in between if they're Hispanic. There's very little data about other populations. There's no data about mixed populations. So we've got a lot of work to right. do here. But, right. but that just kind of shows you how mm. the bar has moved. And so the definition of when or how we can tell when puberty starts yes. in a boy is that their testicles are 
larger than three millimeters? Three, three Is that milliliters. Right? Okay, so there's this wonderful necklace that pediatricians have. <laughs> okay. It's called an orchidometer, and it has these beads, and the beads get bigger and bigger, and there are about a dozen of them, and they get bigger, and they start at prepubescent. Prepubescent is smaller than three milliliters because testicles are measured in volume, volume right? Which is sort <laughs> of like <laughs> how, how out of touch can we be with our bodies? Let's measure our testicles in volume. So if you've got a three to five millimeter testicle, you have entered puberty, basically. Well, I've never met a parent who's like, okay, come on over here. Let me measure, you know, or actually I have met those parents and that's a whole other thing. Um, even I didn't do that. And I was dying to do that. I just taken everything in me not to do that. So that is how we know they've tipped, which is why it's generally only pediatricians who know. And it's only pediatricians who fully examine kids, right? right. So you got to think about that too. We'll get back to today's chat in a minute. Hi guys, Elise here, Chief Content Officer and co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. GP recorded this episode before the coronavirus pandemic, so I'm stepping in, like a good friend, to make this announcement. Our beauty team wanted to spread a bit of cheer during this time, so if you order a box of Goop Glow, they're throwing in a second box on them because sometimes it's the little things, right? If you've never tried it, Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. In other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. It's really refreshing and has quickly become a morning staple for me. Since I'm not spending much time on makeup or skincare these days, Goop Glow is an easy way to get an extra daily dose of skincare in. Our team designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. Most of them you've probably heard of, like vitamin C and vitamin E. It also has CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. Altogether, the antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress, which I'm definitely feeling right now. The powder comes in single-dose packets, and you can subscribe to 30 packs of Goop Glow to get a new box every month. To try it for yourself, order one box of Goop Glow today, and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow at checkout. That's goop.com slash goopglowpodcast, and then use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So as we touched on, your wonderful boy started puberty early. Yeah. So how did you start to notice that? Yeah. And tell me a little bit about what that was like, because he was very early. Yeah. I mean, compared to the other boys. Yeah. And, it, you know, he's walking around like head and shoulders taller and with his so funny. deep voice. And so I want to understand a little bit what early puberty for a boy means yeah. and how as a parent, you know, when they're first in the yeah. pack, how you approach it. Well, you have to remember what life must be like for my kids, right? Because here I am and I write all these books and I teach the classes that they take oh, in I school. Know. When I told my kids, I was like, I'm interviewing Dr. Natterson this morning. And I was like, oh my God, the sex talk. <laughs> it was a day, you know, that was the first time I'd ever done it for either of my kids was when Talia and Apple were in that room. And I swear, Talia was under her desk. She was hiding from me. It was horrible. And all the other kids were going, this is so cool. You're so lucky. 
your mom is teaching it. And she's looking at them like, what are you talking oh about? So, you know, but yes. I just have to interject and say it was an amazing sex talk because oh. they came home and someone, an adult that they respected, had actually given them real facts that mm-hmm. were kind of past what you would imagine a teacher would talk about with mm. 12-year-old kids. And they need to understand yeah. all the different kinds of sex and they need they to do. understand consent and they need to understand you know, especially in the landscape, which we'll touch on later in how visual with porn. And it was great. I think they walked away feeling really empowered and like they had grown up a notch after that talk. Well, I, you know what? I've never spoken down to kids. I think that's why I like my job. In fact, I tell people, your kids can read this book. I wrote it so that's readable for certainly for a high school kid, but even a middle schooler can read this book. They deserve to be educated. There's no secret sauce to parenting that parents need to know that kids shouldn't be let in on. It's right. all just about information yeah. and and what we all do with that information. So thank you for that. I mean, I had fun, but my children did not have so much fun in that room. But <laughs> So going back to them being <laughs> so, your children, right. and, and mortified by the... Right. Totally. Oral sex talk. Because I was not the the knowledgeable adult in the room, let's mind you. I was the mom in the room for them. But both of my kids were early bloomers, actually. And they were very armed with the language because anatomical terms are they're just vocab in my house. I mean, you should hear the dinner table conversations. Really, not pretty between a cardiologist yeah. oh, and a I tell you, I tell you, in, and in stomach flu season, it's really great. <laughs> it's really fun to be at my house. So, you know, both of them were early bloomers. Both of them understood that I understood. And so I think probably I'm not the best yardstick for that because they understood how to ask and how to talk about it. But I will tell you that I really empathized with my son because he did grow up faster than all the kids around him. And, you know, he was the the tallest and his shoulders went broad fast. I mean, he looked like a man Absolutely. by the time he was in seventh grade. And it's, I've always known as a pediatrician, that is a heavy burden because when you have the brain of a child, but the body of a young adult, it, that's hard to balance. Watching it in my own home, I had a new level of empathy. Mm. I also have a new level of empathy for the other extreme, which is the very late blooming boy, especially boy, because the girls all go through puberty a little bit earlier. So the late blooming boy is the last of the last, of right? And so sense. everyone else is suddenly grown up physically. And here's this little guy. And of course, my son's closest, closest friends are the latest bloomers, <laughs> which is hysterical. I mean, they are, you know, they just, it's a, it's a great visual. And it reminds you that their brains are are chronologically wired and their brains do what they want to do and their bodies might be behaving separately. I will say that I'm a big believer in direct and and really clear advice. So when my son started to smell, I told him he needed to use soap in a different way. And I said, I will come in and show you how to do it, or you can figure it out. And he was like, I got it, mom. (laughs) But he was very grateful because no one is going to tell your child they smell, right? Except for you until they get bullied around it. Right. Or with skincare, it's been, you know, all about him taking ownership of his own skincare. And, you know, 
some kids are going to get bad acne and some kids aren't, and there's a little bit of a genetic gift to it. There's also a lot you can do. You can eat well, you can sleep well, you can wash your face. And if we empower our kids with all the knowledge and information, then they have, they have sort of autonomy around it and they feel like they have a little more control and it feels better. So he had to do that stuff a little earlier than other kids. Yeah. So, and that was... I mean, you know. he's lucky that he had you as a mom. Yeah, you're right. He, that would be my word, too. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, if he was sitting here. He might... He would. He might grunt because he's, you know, 14. And one of the great things about the book is in every chapter, whatever issue you're bringing to light, you have very... You have, like, this is how I talk to my children, oh, basically. Yeah. You know, you impart... Because sometimes I think to have structure around a conversation, that's often, I think, yeah. a difficult part for yeah. parents especially when they're broaching more difficult subjects. So when it comes to, what is your sort of overarching advice for mothers or parents, fathers who have boys who are, or or girls for that matter, but we're really talking about boys today that have, or that are seeing puberty really early. What are are the ways in which you spoke to Rye to make him feel comfortable? So I think regardless of where you are on the puberty spectrum, the most important thing you can do is acknowledge it with your kid. So sometimes with puberty, it's the elephant in the room and no one wants to talk about it. And we all pretend it's not happening. And that's not fair to the kid, right? Mm -hmm. Because we actually know how to manage it a lot better than they do. And they're hungry for the information. So I, you know, my best advice, if you've got a child who's starting to go through puberty is talk about it. And you don't want to say, you know, something judgy or something awkward or uncomfortable, but you can say, Hey, I'm noticing that you're a lot taller than you were, or I'm noticing that when you take your shoes off, I have to leave the room for a minute (laughs) or, you know, whatever. And you can say what you're observing and then you can ask the question, you know, have you noticed that? Or you want, you want to talk about what you can do about that? Or have you thought about doing anything about that? And it's a very non-judgmental way to broach the subject. Every parent-child dyad is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So there is no one way to go about any of these conversations because it's going to depend upon your personality, your child's personality, your temperaments, your patience, your availability, the history that you have together, their own medical history, their emotional history, right? There are all these variables. I will tell you, There is no place for others in the room. And what I mean by that is we get on our kids so much about getting off their devices and engaging with us. But if we are on our devices while we're trying to have meaningful conversations with them, that sends a lot of messages to them. That says there are other things that are just as important as this conversation right now, and I might need to turn my attention to this. Or more. Or more. And so I would say get those those people, meaning your device, out of the room. Mm-hmm. So take that away. And then the other is don't think you can say it once and it's in. I mean, right? With anything. With anything. Right? It's hundreds of times yeah. it's going back constantly and and so yeah. if, if you approach it lots of different ways at lots of different mm-hmm. moments one-on-one yeah. we're sitting here and we're looking at each other in the eye kids don't like that they don't like to be approached with new information in this very intense way where it's right. eye to eye. I liked it where you said the car is a it's great place to broach difficult things. It's the best because you're not looking at each other. Or if you say goodnight and you turn off the light, right? For younger kids, that's when they start talking, Yeah. right? My kids stay up later than I do now. So that has passed that phase. But really, truly, this eye contact thing is really intimate. And so if you're trying to have a conversation that you're a little nervous about or you might go south... 
adding this cook piece a meal to it, or right. get in the car right, right. or just Wait till, yeah mm-hmm. go for a run yeah. take the dog for a walk whatever that's great advice yeah. and talk to me a little bit about the conversations for the late bloomers yeah. because i think what's interesting about early bloomers is all of a sudden they have these yeah. this man's body so maybe they have anxiety about how do how do i grow into this yeah. physique that i've stumbled into <laughs> yeah. but what i've noticed for the later bloomers yeah. is you know now their brains are developing mm-hmm. so they're a little bit more emotionally mature and intellectually mm-hmm. mature right and they could be 14 years old but their bodies haven't caught up with them That's right. and it's cause it causes anxiety yeah. and some insecurity so tell me a little yeah. bit about why some boys are later and what's the best way to kind of give them the room to have that conversation? Well, it's a really important way you framed that question, which is the brain develops chronologically. So a 14-year-old is going to have essentially a 14-year-old brain. Yes, we know more mature kids and less mature kids, but by and large, by age, they are sort of in a similar developmental space. And so sometimes we forget that when we look at their bodies because their bodies are so different. So the late bloomers. So these kids, it's very interesting. Um, What I talk about in the book is the concept of late blooming is just a statistical concept. So it's just the the last two and a half percent to enter puberty. That's the definition of a late bloomer. If I walked around the corner and walked into the middle school around the corner and said, what is the definition of late blooming? They would give me a very different definition. There are many more boys who feel late to the party than two and a half percent. So late blooming. Yeah, that was interesting about reading those statistics is right. like anecdotally that a lot more seem yes. younger or later. Because right. we're not in there measuring their testicles, right? <laughs> <laughs> so basically, for our late bloomers, um, it's largely genetic. We know that up to three quarters of all late bloomers, when you go and you take a family history, their mom was a late bloomer. She got her period after she was 16, or their dad was a late bloomer. He did not go through puberty, did not start puberty until at least 14. So the definition of late blooming is nada at 14. Okay. Right. The, my biggest issue with the management of late blooming is that for a long time, doctors said, just watch and wait because by 18, most of it resolves. Well, I mean, how cruel is that? You've got a 14-year-old, now a 15-year-old, now a 16-year-old who looks for all intents and purposes completely prepubescent. And what are the social and emotional repercussions of that? They're huge. So thankfully, that trend is shifting and endocrinologists are starting to take that into consideration when they try to approach what to do. But why it's happening, it's just that the testosterone machinery hasn't been turned on. So the whole thing about testicle growth is testicles are testosterone factories. That's where you make the hormone. That hormone is what turns on puberty. So if the factory doesn't get revved up, then the hormone doesn't get circulated. And the latest bloomers, that mechanism just hasn't been turned on yet. One thing that happens to them that's really interesting is that when kids grow each year. They grow an average of about two inches a year, some less, some a little bit more, but call it two inches. Late bloomers, for whatever reason, they tend to really slow down their growth in the year or two before they enter puberty. So they might only grow a half an inch a year. So they aren't going through their pubertal growth spurt. Those kids are taller than them already. And they're not even gaining the regular height they gain every single year. They're kind of just stagnating at this shorter height. 
which is a hit. That's, you know, that's sort of the double whammy. They don't look older and now they're not growing. And then when they do finally catch up and go into puberty, they're not catching up. So our girls, you know, my daughter was an early bloomer. She was classic. She was taller than everyone when she was young. She went through puberty young, and then she stopped, and all the late bloomers passed her in height, right? My son is a classic. He was an early blooming boy. He grew early, and he will be one of the tallest boys. His friends who are late bloomers, they have really slowed down. They're in eighth grade, and they're not growing at all right now. And by the time their puberty really kicks in and they get their growth spurt, their growth is so far behind, and they have slowed down so much, they may not get to where genetically you might think they're going to go. So they might wind up even shorter than you would think. And height in this society has a lot of baggage associated with it, right? There is just a lot dumped on height. Um, And it's hard for boys to think of themselves as beautiful or attractive when they couple it with shorter Mm. height. Which brings me to something that I wanted to talk to you about because the section in the book where you talk about boys having these, this model, right, for what a male physique is supposed to look like. And I felt so, like I had been so incredibly like obtuse and stupid in my thinking that, oh my gosh, girls are the ones that have all this body pressure to conform to these, but you know, to, and cause I thought, gosh, we've made so much progress as well. Like when I was growing up, there was one desirable female body type, right? It was sort of like this, the Christy Turlington, Mm -hmm. Claudia Schiffer, thin boobs. And that was it. And now there are these other body types that are considered really desirable Mm -hmm. as well. And I thought, well, we're making progress that you don't have to be a 10 foot tall, you know, skinny woman with big boobs to be considered beautiful. Like there's all these other desirable types, which you elucidate in the book. But I never stopped to think what you said, which really impacted me that since however long it's been that GI Joe body type (laughs) for men, one type, and there's no margin around Mm -hmm. it on either side for what you're supposed to look like. That's That's kind of it. And the pressure, the innate pressure that these boys must feel. You tell this great story about a naked Abercrombie model in the mall. (laughs) (laughs) In the freezing 60 degree weather in the mall. And yeah, I mean, think about it. We never talk to our boys about body ideals and it's their list of ideal features is tremendous, right? It starts at the top of the head, either full head of hair or perfectly shaved round head. Okay. Just start with that. And then the pressures march all the way down to the toes. And height. Oh, height is huge. Broadness of shoulders. For sure. Abs. Abs, chest, muscularity is huge. In fact, muscularity is such a big issue around body image and eating disorders for boys. It's what's driven our unawareness because We have defined body issues and eating disorders around thinness. We think that if you're trying to lose weight, that is sort of the first flag around a body body dysmorphia or a disordered eater. Well, no, boys are not trying to be thinner. Some boys are. There's an obesity epidemic, and there are certainly boys who want to be thinner. But the majority of boys want to be muscular. They actually want to be bigger and bulkier. And so... If we apply our female lens to a male body, we're going to miss all of the boys who have insecurity around this frame. And 
They have no idea what they're going to look like. All they know is maybe there's a male in the house who's genetically related to them and they can see that that may be where I go, maybe. But that's that's all they've got. So the body image thing, it's very interesting. It's the thing that people seem to talk about the most when they read the book. It's the thing that sort of people kick themselves about. Um, yes, that was right? my experience exactly because yeah. I just thought it never occurred to me yeah. that our teenage boys yeah. – are insecure in this yeah. way that they are being they as well are being bombarded by images yeah. of what the ideal male looks like and right. what it might, must be creating for them and I actually talked about it at dinner last night with Moses and Brody yeah. and they were very open and vulnerable about yeah. the fact that yes they feel tremendous pressure to look That's a right. certain way and it's everywhere in culture That's right and i was so grateful that you had yeah. written about it and you know again like i just think for parents to have their eyes open around yeah. what it is. Cause we forget, you know, we I, do. it's like, That's I right. was reading it and thinking, my gosh, I remember the pain of being okay. this late bloomer and yeah. wondering exactly what you just said. I don't know what I'm going to look like. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm ever going to develop, like, mm -hmm. what does this mean for me? And so important to bring that empathy back to the conversation with them. That's right. And then you stop and think about what boys are willing to do in order to be muscular or to meet the ideal. Right. So, They've got phones, right? So average age for phone ownership, smartphone ownership in this country is right around 10. And I say that with no judgment. I say that just as a point of fact. Yeah. So those are, among other things, purchasing machines. Yeah. So we've got boys who now have access to supplements that they're starting to take. The numbers are staggering. We have boys who are able to find anabolic steroids on the black market, and they will take them in order to be muscular. These are smart boys. These are educated boys. They know what they're doing. They understand the trade-off. They have been taught that this is not good for them. Can you imagine the pressure they must feel in order to either perform in sport or just perform socially to look a certain way mm -hmm. that they're willing to take this gamble? It's, it's a very real pressure. So I feel like this piece has been the most interesting to, to shine a light on. It's really tricky in a world where a third now more of children and adolescents are either overweight or obese. This is a very hard needle to thread because you, when I walk into a room and I teach kids about taking care of their bodies and nutrition and exercise and sort of uh, honoring the temple of their body, I am talking to kids who are all over the map in terms of what they look like and how they feel about what they look like. And if a third of my audience is really struggling and does need to start eating differently and exercising differently so that they can avoid heart disease and all the complications of carrying around too much weight... How do you talk to those kids in the same breath that you're talking to kids who are starving themselves in order to attain thinness or who are, you know, working out two hours a day in order to attain muscularity? It's, it's tricky and it's tricky for parents in their own home. Yeah. You have more than one kid. You've got more than one set of issues in terms of body type. So what do you think is the predominant issue that underlies yeah. all of these things, you know, whatever yeah. end of the spectrum they're on. Yeah. Like how can we as parents identify right. what their underlying issue is and help? Yeah. I think it's twofold. I think the first thing is we are woefully uneducated about basic nutrition. I think it's terrible. I think doctors are woefully uneducated. We don't get a course of nu in nutrition in medical school. Which There's seems crazy to crazy. me. It's crazy. I think the way 
nutrition is accessed in this country is insane. The way we price healthy foods versus unhealthy foods. I mean, I could go on about what's happening to our healthcare system, but it, I think it is largely driven by what we each put into our bodies on a daily basis. So we need to educate our kids, and that means ourselves, about nutrition. And beyond educate, we actually need to follow through and choose to eat foods that are good for us and that will maintain our health and wellness. The other thing is we have to do for boys what we've done for girls. We have to go to more models of beauty. So I don't know how that happened, right? It's a really interesting path to sort of think about how did we, who fought for that redefinition of beauty? Where did it begin? Whose voice was that? You know, I do think height. I think that's the exactly. first thing that we have to take off the table. We There are so many men who don't want to show their height because they they think that makes them look less attractive. They check every other box, but my height takes me down. Or I saw a picture the other day, all of the Democratic candidates were from behind at one of the debate, on one of the debate stages, and who was on a riser and who wasn't. Isn't that interesting? You know, is that about really being able to see everyone, or is that about the value we put on mm -hmm. height and Equating how we think power or masculinity right. with height? That's right. So I think height is the first one we should figure yeah. that out and take that off the table. And so, since we've touched on masculinity, I just wanted to read this one. I need my glasses. <laughs> it makes me feel better. I, I can't am, do it without I've my gone glasses. Blind. I know. I know. Okay. You have the my arms are too short for my body syndrome. Of I'm like yeah. <laughs> if I and just because I went blind overnight yeah. inexplicably, yes. I keep forgetting to take my glasses when I go to a restaurant or if I'm doing anything. I know. Because it's not part of my routine yet. I know. It will be soon enough. I well, clearly because yeah, yeah. then you're gonna order stuff you don't want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you write about masculinity. How masculinity drives boy body image. Masculinity is part psychology, part physique. On the emotional side of the equation, being masculine generally means guarding feelings, a convenient definition in light of the fact that boys generally get quiet when they enter puberty and begin their transformation into men who are expected to hold in worry, sadness, and vulnerability. That said, it's also classically manly to feel rage and show it, to be confident and to take command. And these days, men are praised for expressing their vulnerability, stress, heartache, and confusion too. That is, as long as they still retain some element of being big and strong and macho. So I thought that was just fascinating because, you know, here we are as an evolving society, and yet we're so behind in terms of these categories that we define as masculine. And we're saying, no, you have to be, you know, but we're trying to raise our boys to be more vulnerable and empathetic, but we yeah. still have this image of like this macho man. So how do we begin to teach our boys to reconcile those things? And what does a modern version of masculinity look like from your yeah. purview? You know, it's funny. I think this week watching in the aftermath of Kobe's death, watching the outpouring of emotion from very masculine men, sort of classically masculine men, has um, moved the needle even more. I, th I think in the girl world, we do a really good job of lumping a hundred adjectives into the definition of being feminine and female. 
I think in the boy world, we have a lot more room for a lot more adjectives. I don't think these things need to be mutually exclusive. I think you can be a lot of different things. I, I am a lot of different things. You are a lot of different things. And that's what makes life interesting. I also think in the world of the gender spectrum and losing all the sort of classic gendered silos, which personally I believe is a very healthy thing, I think we will be able to pull over adjectives that used to be assigned to the girl, so to speak, and we will say, no, that's that's a human attribute. Right. And ditto for the, the boy adjective. Right. So what is what does masculinity look like? You know, my fantasy is that though that word sort of disappears. It won't, it's a descriptor, but I just like I think femininity doesn't really mean very much anymore. It could mean so many things to so many people. I hope that's what masculinity becomes in the future. I hope it just becomes a an adjective to describe what it is to be X, Y, and choose to wear that on the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are a lot of people who would argue that having some masculinity and some femininity is sort of where humanity falls. And that's a great thing. I think that's absolutely right. So how do we talk to our boys about this kind of new emerging definition of masculinity? So I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when, when I write books, I ask my kids to read them and they don't because (laughs) I wrote them. <laughs> so that's like um, my kids. They've never seen me in a movie. Yeah, okay, right. And, so you're not alone. Right. And 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 it feels a little bad sometimes. So they, I was fine, fine, fine with it. But I wrote this book and I yeah, I had a little discomfort about being a woman writing this book about boys. And truth be told, I was just waiting for a guy to write it for all these years and no guy did. And and I don't think it's gendered. I actually think going through puberty and raising children is human. So Great, I did it. And I say to Rye, who's, he's not a big reader, but he's a pretty bright kid. And I said, can you please, please read it? No. Why do I have to? Because, you know, if, if you wrote a, an essay and spent a year writing an essay, I would read it and tell you what I thought. Right. And so he's like, fine. You know, and he, he goes into his room. And he's a sweetheart of a guy. I'm, I, you know, you know him. I'm char- over-characterizing him. But he goes into his room and he naturally shuts his door. And he comes out about 20 minutes later. And he goes, Mom, your premise is all wrong. And now the book is at the printer, okay? This is how long it's taken me to get him to read it. And I says, say, excuse me? And he goes, Mom, your premise is all wrong. Your whole thing in here is about how boys go quiet when they go into puberty and they don't share how they feel. We don't have feelings. <laughs> and he goes back into his room and he shuts the door. And I was like, and that's why I read the book. So that, okay, that is brilliant. Is that so funny? So, and then I was like, give me the book. I don't want your opinion anymore. <laughs> I think that is my biggest message to parents. It's these boys, they feel like they need to shut down. They do get quiet. They do shut their door. They do want to hole up. That is all normal and natural. If our girls did that, we would never tolerate it. We would stick our foot in that door or we would Mm -hmm. get into the room and get in front of them and have the conversation. I think for parents to understand that watching what our boys want to do or think they want to do 
and recognizing that actually they just haven't tapped into whatever it is they're feeling and they need language around the feelings and they need to be told it's okay to feel and I'm going to talk to you about it. And this may not be something you want right now, but if you don't do it now, I'm going to come back tomorrow and then I'm going to come back again and then I'm going to come back again. And then if you do it, they will start to articulate what they're feeling. They are being raised in a culture that really rewards quiet when they're going through this phase in life, right? That it just does. Think about the classroom. The class rewards a child who is sitting quietly and politely. Think about a dinner when kids are out with adults. The world rewards politeness and quiet, especially for boys who the alternative is rowdy and wild. So for us to be able to say to them, I'll give you your quiet and I'll give you your privacy. But by the way, I think you have all the same deep feelings that your sister has, that I have, that your dad has, that this person, this person have, allows them to have voice. And I will tell you, those are the most powerful conversations we have in our house are the ones where it's sort of, no, no, you're pushing me too hard, mom. I mean, they will, they will tell you when the conversation's over, by the way, they will leave. So that happened to me last night too. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It happens a lot in my house, (laughs) but when, when they don't, and when they actually stay, it's, it's powerful. Well, this brings me to my next topic, which is the reason why Moses left the room last night. (laughs) And again, in anticipation of my conversation with you, I was really shocked to read about, you know, of course, we all know that pornography is incredibly pervasive. It's incredibly easy to access. You know, they figure out how to circumvent the internet Mm -hmm. controls that you have Mm -hmm. in your house. It's just, there's no way around it. And the statistics around basically 100% of teenage boys have seen porn by the time they're 18. Yeah. 99.9999999. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Whoever's listening is like, oh, I've got the point. Oh, 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 1%. No. By the way, you don't. You don't. But yes. And so I I, I kind of, that, I I thought this is table stakes. Like, of course, we know that it's everywhere. But what really surprised me and worried me was understanding this early exposure to porn and how some boys their fascination with it leads them to need more and more stimulation in order to have orgasm. And they're not able They have erectile dysfunction now when they're having normal sex that hasn't. So what are we supposed to do about this? At what point did he leave the room in this conversation? (laughs) (laughs) He left the room after, uh, you know, we talked all about the book and what you had talked about. And I said, you know, this is really worrying to me. And we talked about, you know, the importance of human contact mm-hmm. and interaction and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think he left the room when I was like, look, I know you're going to watch porn, but yeah. let's, you know, I think you have to self govern this because yeah. there are medical outcomes that can come from this that can actually really be detrimental in your life and for yeah. your pleasure. And then he was like, okay. Like when I started to get into. <laughs> right, we were having a totally parallel experience last night. It's really funny because Rye asked me what I was doing today. And I said, oh, I'm going to go sit down and chat with Moses's mom. And he said, oh, and I said, you know, I just want to say one more time and Talia was in the room too. I go, and they were ready for bed, right? They're they're, they're like, good night. I'm going, and I was like, wait, just one more time. I just want you to know. I just want you to have really positive sexual relationships <laughs> when you're older. And they look at me like, oh God, here we go again. And and I said, and I, you know, 
this week, I've been talking a lot about the book and porn always comes up. And I just want you to understand you're not in trouble for seeing it. It's everywhere around you. It's hard not to stumble onto and it's ubiquitous, right? So I just want you to understand my issue with it is I just don't think it's modeling loving relationships for you. I just want something else for you, but I am not anti-sex. I am pro positive relationships and pro loving great sex. And you know, both my kids left the room. So right. um, it's well, it, I, the I, standard. Yeah. But it is scary because now they have access to these this imagery right. be, way before yeah. they have their first kiss. Yeah. So people say to me, why did you feel the need to write this book? And really, I would say porn was one of the big drivers because I I have the nicest husband in the world. I, he is the nicest guy. And he always he says really to me, is. he really I is can second like that. the nicest guy. And he always says, I got quiet in puberty. I was silent for three years. I emerge out the other end. I'm very expressive. I'm very in touch with my feelings. I'm fine. What's the deal? And porn is the deal, right? Sexual consent is the deal. All of these drivers Mm. uh, that will fundamentally change our children's world that did not exist a generation ago. So if And very different stealing a Playboy. Very different, right? Than seeing, you know... Very different. I don't even want to get into it. If if stealing a Playboy was what was at stake here, we would not be having this conversation, Correct. right? But it's not. And so the average age for first porn viewing is somewhere between 11 and 13, depending upon what study you believe. Um, but that's 50% of all boys by the time they've graduated from middle school have seen it. That is for sure, for sure, right? Almost 100% by the time they graduate from high school. Girls are not far behind. We leave our girls out of this conversation. They're all seeing porn too. Do yourself a favor. Open up a social media app, any social media app. Look at the ads. One click and you're on porn, right? It's just everywhere. Wow. It's they, Porn is coming to them. Yeah. They don't even have to look for it anymore. No. And it is modeling by and large. Now, there, there are different kinds of porn out there, but by and large, the free porn that's out there that's accessible to them, that's trying to hook them, is modeling aggressive or violent or non-consensual sexual acts. That's not what we want for our kids. So that's what's scary about it. So right. that's why if they just shut their door, and by the way, if they have their phone in their room or their computer or whatever, and they're watching porn in there, that's sort of a, a layered issue, right? But even if they're just shutting their door, trying to figure it out on their own, how are they to solve this one? They've never had a kiss and they're watching porn. They've never thought about what sex is going to be like for them. And this is their education. Right. It's a really big deal. It's a really big it's kind deal. Of tragic. It's really sad. I spoke with a woman named Gail Dines a couple of years ago, and she does a ton of research around this. And she used to say, there's no more imagination. There's no more room for imagination because the porn industry is writing the narrative of sex for our children. And I think that's right. right. And so what can we do as parents? Well, yeah. we could take away all their devices, but that's really not going to work. So let's put they'll that use, solution. They'll use Mavericks A hundred percent. That's where they go. So we're going to put that over here as a solution. So what do we do? We talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. We tell them exactly what's out there. And frankly, most parents don't know what's out there. So right. learn, educate yourself. But- And we talk to them about it and always explain why. Don't make a rule like, 
you know, Moses, you can't watch porn, right? Because first of all, his job as a child is to push against her rules, right? right? So just like when he was a toddler. But second of all, he doesn't understand the rationale. If it's Moses, I hope you won't watch porn because this is what porn is modeling. And I'd really love for you to have something different in your life. Then he can take that lesson to Maverick's house right. and if <laughs> and get nowhere and get, with it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it's in there. It's in the lockbox. But when other kids are engaging, he might hear your voice in his head. And again, the more often you say it, the more often you have the conversations, the better. The yeah. more often you have them, the more likely he is to tell you what it's really like and to say, you don't understand. This is how it goes. Or this is what happens when I do watch it. Or to come to you if there's a problem. So... As there's so much to be said about dialogue around porn. You have to start talking about it as a parent. You have to with boys and girls for sure. Right. For sure. Well, I started last night and, you know. Baby steps. Baby steps. <laughs> oh, this is one last thing that I did want to ask you. Well, two two quick things. I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, you, you, you talk about all of these different things in the culture today, like porn and video games and social media, all of these dopamine-inducing things that the, our kids now have, our teenagers now have to deal with that we didn't have to deal with. So does that make it harder for them to self-regulate right. in and of itself? Because everything they do right. and touch and see like gives them this incredible... Right. So just um, t- two seconds on brain development because it it factors yes. into and the it, and, and and for everybody listening, the book. I mean, it's so it's such a digestible, oh, easy you. to understand. You know, biology lesson of the brain and the body is it's 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 fantastic. I wrote that brain chapter for our kids to read because they whenever I teach about the brain. They thank me for teaching them how they make bad decisions. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They do want to know. And then they'll be like, it's my unmyelinated <laughs> uh, prefrontal that's what cortex. They say. They're like, sorry, mom. It's <laughs> <laughs> my limbic system. <laughs> and you're like, ah, Cara. Um, so just two seconds on the brain, which is in a nutshell, as the brain is developing, it's doing two things. It's myelinating. So the nerves are insulating so that they can send messages more effectively and more quickly. And it's pruning. It's getting rid of what it doesn't need, and it's holding on to what it uses. And that combination and the order in which that happens is really important. So by the time a child goes to middle school, the part of their brain that is fully mature and developed is the limbic system. It is the feel-good, impulsive, risk-taking part of the brain. It takes until you are at least 30 to have the prefrontal cortex, which is the counterbalance of the limbic system, fully on board doing what it needs to do. So the prefrontal cortex goes, huh, if I do this, this might happen. If I do that, that might happen. Maybe I should do that. Okay, we've got like 15 years between eighth grade and when the prefrontal cortex can do its job. And that sometimes explains, later for certain men. Sometimes later. And that explains everything you know about your twenties, right? <laughs> like you think about it, you're like, oh, everyone I knew had no prefrontal <laughs> cortex myelination. But what's important to understand about that is inside this brain, there are these powerful neurochemicals. And the one that seems to show up as sort of a lowest common denominator for anything that makes us feel good is dopamine. So dopamine is, you hear about it all the time and you hear about it because it's the one neurotransmitter that's there anytime you feel pleasure, anytime you've got sort of a positive hit, you've got this little release of dopamine and it might be in this part of the brain or it might be in that part of the brain. And I talk a lot about it in the chapter on addiction because people want to understand what drives addiction. And ultimately what drives addiction is that a dopamine hit feels so good. 
it feels so good. And so if you start to get those dopamine hits. And they get hits, it from Snapchat or a video sure. game or where, wherever. For sure. I mean, listen, there are people who get it from getting an A on a math test. You can get dopamine hits anywhere, right? That's living the dream. I know. So, but... He, the question is, how do we tailor our exposures so that our dopamine hits don't sort of cause us to get into this addictive cycle where we're seeking dopamine hits? It's the simplest way I can put it. Right. And so, when, we're, when we were teenagers, I mean, I'm sure there were ways, of course, that we oh, for sure. would get yeah. dopamine, but it just seems so accessible and at their fingertips all the time. And this is why I'm, I'm sort of militant about where devices live in the house. It, and if this is not the case for you, you should think about implementing this now. And everyone blames me, so go for it. Because I, I could care less if I'm <laughs> reviled because I think I'm helping kids. Devices should not live in the room. And the reason why is your brain actually needs a rest. We are not designed to have right. dopamine hits 24-7. And we crave them and we seek them. So if you've got a phone sitting next to your bed charging, okay? And we know this as adults who have fully mature brains. And there's a little ding or a little buzz. You're going to go check it. Why? Because you want to see if it's the one in 20, maybe slightly positive messages, not spam, not someone asking you for a favor, but it might be the one sort of rare of the moment. This is a great text or this is a great email. Our kids are wired the same way. They engage mostly on social media platforms and they do it late at night getting hit after hit after hit after hit. And that is causes all sorts of problems. It can cause, you know, shopping problems. It can cause nude selfie issues. It can cut, right? It can go in any one of a uh, hundred mm-hmm. directions. If you just say, hey, your phone lives in my room. You've, all you've done is you've minimized the likelihood that they're going to be up all night trying to get the dopamine hit. Right. That's all. Right. You're not being mean. You're giving them permission to sleep. No. And sleep is the best thing for them. Yeah. So that's yeah. my advice and, about and devices. testosterone as well, right? 100%. It's, it sleep affects everything, yeah. metabolism and, and wellness. I mean, it's really at the core of all of it. You say that delay is the antidote to addiction. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. It's all about brain maturation. So if you're trying to wait until your brain is mature before you get these tracks of dopamine hits sort of ingrained. Think about it like this. In a snowstorm, right? Piles of snow. You walk through the snow and you create a little path. It's hard at first, but you create a path. Each time you walk over the same path, it gets easier and easier and easier to tread. Okay. That's what happens in our brains when we do a repetitive task, especially one that we like, right? It is just, it's like walking through that path in snow and we are just ingraining it in our brain. So if we delay exposure to anything, really. Then what we're doing is we're allowing our brain to get fully mature, to prune itself and to myelinate so that if we drink a glass of wine or if we, you know, go on video games or whatever it is, yeah, we're going to get that dopamine hit. But it's in a brain that is fairly well cooked. And it is in a brain that is a little less vulnerable to having that path well trodden at a young age when it may not have gone that direction as you get older. This does not mean you can't become addicted as an adult. Of course you can. We know plenty of people who are exposed, you know, look at the opiate epidemic. This is, you know, the brain is, is absolutely susceptible to addiction at all ages. But in terms of, you know, 
candy crush. Like, is that really what you want your brain to be expert at, right? So you want to think about where am I laying down tracks? Where am I, how am I telling my brain I want it to grow and develop? And it's really hard for a kid to understand how to do that. And so that's what parenting is, <laughs> right? That's what we're doing. And so just delay. I always say to my kids, I am not telling you you can't drink. I'm just asking you to please not drink now. Wait, there's a reason that the law is the law. Just give your brain a chance. But it's, it's not a no. And by the way, they're far more likely to follow our advice if as we're having our glass of wine or whatever it is, if we explain that delay is the goal and not no for most things. I mean, if you think about the the hypocrisy of us saying no to them and then how we live our lives, right? It's yeah. really, it's very powerful. So as their brain is mature, they're not going to wait till 30 to do all these things, but <clears throat> let's get them. Each year we get them. We, it's a little bit better for yeah. their brain. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Kara Natterson. You can learn more about her at worryproofmd.com and pick up a copy of her excellent book, Decoding Boys. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.